You have a friend who goes to church on Saturday, which is just fine with you. And it doesn't seem to be an issue until your friend says that you're in violation of God's law and you're displeasing the Father if you worship on Sunday. We have another friend, a Christian, who noticed that you have some fine wines on a rack in your cellar. And they rather coldly suggest that you may be planting seeds for the destruction of your children by having those there. And you have a third friend who doesn't want to go to the beach with you on the beach trip because you press him for a reason and he admits that he has a problem with the whole environment from a moral point of view seeing more skin that he thinks is wise and he just said he doesn't do the beach doesn't go there and you think well you know I need to loosen up this guy a little bit he stretched too tight I should persuade him to come along and then, and then you're thinking well maybe I shouldn't do that or, or should I each of those situations and many many other ones like them you will regularly encounter if you spend much time and involvement in a church. Romans chapter 12 and 13, Paul has covered in a very comprehensive way what it means to live as an authentic Christian. He's talked about church life. He's talked about relating to unbelievers, even enemies. He's explained our obligation to the civil authorities, the government. He's exhorted us to practice love in all situations and to live with the vision and the sight of Christ's future coming and the expectation of his return. And there's an important aspect of the Christian life that Paul felt the Romans still needed to hear. And some people call this the issue of gray areas. You know what gray is? Oh, don't look at me like that. I know what gray is. <laughs> Gray is something that's neither black nor white. And that's the idea. Um, how to deal with things that aren't black and white. How do we do that together as church? And the real reality here is this does touch on this whole idea of gray areas, but the main idea in Romans 14, as it approaches some of these subjects, is not the gray area itself, it's the relationship that we have with one another. It's a relational issue. That is, how does love react to another person's conscience? How do we function together when our convictions on some matters are different? You do not have to be in the church for a very long time before you run into these kind of situations. I have to deal with them all the time as a pastor and simply as a brother to my fellow believers. The church is full of people and people with all different kinds of backgrounds and all different kinds of experiences. And in the New Testament time where Paul was writing, living in Corinth, which is a very metropolitan place at the time he wrote to Rome, this letter to Rome, a city like Rome, Christians came from paganism, they came from Judaism, they came from various philosophical schools, different nationalities, different cultures. It was a very rich and complex social environment, not at all unlike a modern urban area. At our church, here in the year 2002, we have people who were raised in a variety of places. They have different religious backgrounds, educational experiences, different regions, different subcultures. 
And we are all to work together to advance the kingdom of our Savior, Jesus Christ. How are we going to do that? That's what Romans chapter 14 is all about. How are we going to do that? And the answer is not this. The answer is not the church will tell us everything we are to think and feel. The pastor and the elders will be my conscience. Their wish is my command. And as much as I wish it was that way. <laughs> Actually, I don't. Um, but that's not it. There are churches that function that way. But that's not what we're told to do. The leaders are to set an example. And they teach what the scripture clearly says. And they do not impose their own conscience in less clear matters on the flock as divine law because it's their opinion. They don't do that. And if they do, they're stepping across a boundary line they shouldn't step across. So you need to understand these principles in Christian living because guess what? You are responsible for your conscience. And if you really understand Romans 14, it will solve all kinds of problems, relational problems in the church for you before they ever happen. Wouldn't it be nice to solve your problems before they happen? This is a good thing to know. So pay close attention to the text and follow closely Paul's thinking here. Let's start with verse 1. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing opinion on his, passing judgment on his opinions. How do we get along in God's service? We accept the one who is weak in faith. There's a key word there, accept. Not reject, not turn a cold shoulder to, not condemn, but accept. Open-armed, open-hearted, unrestrained fellowship. You are different from me, and I accept you. Acceptance, that's what is being asked of us. And it is acceptance of a particular kind of Christian, the kind who is not like you. That's what he's talking about. Now, what is meant by the one who is weak in faith? Well, the whole discussion, Paul makes it easy for us. He kind of divides it into two groups, the weak and the strong. Well, who are the weak here? Now, as we will see shortly, the weak in faith are not weak in regards to believing. That's not the point here. They are just as earnest, they are just as sincere believers in Jesus as the strong. They live for Christ, they want to serve Him, they're not weak in the sense that they're half-hearted in their devotion. That's not it. Nor are they morally weak. They're not failing to live the Christian life in, in profound ways. He's not talking about the person who has stumbled into a sin. That's not what he means by weak in faith. Paul has something very specific in mind, and you see it in verse 2. That, that explains it. The context explains what it means. Verse 2, One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. So what does that mean? The strong, for example, and this is one example, is not bound by dietary restrictions for religious reasons. Now, that's what we're talking about. You, you're not a weak person of faith if you're a vegetarian for health purposes. That's your business. We're talking about religious observance. The weak will not eat meat, not because of health, but because he fears the meat 
may be wrong for him to eat. It might be unclean or somehow connected to idolatry or something, which will make which would be very possible in a pagan city. You might walk down to the meat market and buy meat, and unbeknownst to you, that meat was in a temple a little earlier being offered to some deity, you see. The weak one is the Christian who does not yet fully grasp or apprehend the liberty that is found in Christ's saving work. He believes he is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, but in many ways, how he conducts his life in the ways he does that, he's just very concerned to be avoiding things or observing things that he thinks God cares about but that are not explicitly set forth in Scripture. For example, on this food issue, he's thinking about the Roman meat market. So here's this Christian who wants to live for the Lord. He's converted out of paganism. How does he know if that meat's acceptable or not? He weighs that. It may have been offered to an idol. It may have been slaughtered in the wrong way, according to the Old Testament. And since I don't know, I'm not going to eat any meat to avoid offending God. And in that way, I will honor the Lord. That's how he's thinking. Now the strong, he doesn't care where the meat came from. Doesn't care. If it was offered to idols, he didn't offer it. It's just meat to him. See? And idols aren't real anyway, right? They're just wooden stones, so there's nothing there. So why worry? Here's the concern. An attitude problem develops between these two individuals. The weaker one says, this guy doesn't care about displeasing God. He doesn't care. He's just eating meat. Hey, what kind of Christian is that? And the strong thinks, don't these guys know any better? It's just me. They're so fastidious about nothing. What goombas. That's a wing word. This attitude thing on both sides is wrong. That's, the, that's what he's dealing with, the attitude. That's the issue. So Paul says in verse 3, Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat. What a fool. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has accepted him. Why should the weak person refrain from judging? Because God has accepted the other guy. The weak Christian is drawing all kinds of inferences about the other guy based on what he does. Because the other guy doesn't do what he's doing, see? He isn't careful about idols, not like I am. How can he profess Christ and eat meat like that? You see the issue. The strong then looks down his nose. Now that weak person, he's so caught up in all this nonsense. Doesn't he know how free we are in Christ? What a low-level Christian. So the strong looks down his nose and the weak is standing in the place of God. These are common feelings in churches. Common. The wicked feelings and impulses that have to be carefully rooted out of the heart. Have to be. So let's 
let's clarify a couple things first before we go any further with this. <clears throat> first of all, the weak person is not a heretic. He's not, he's not teaching false doctrine. He's not believing the wrong things about salvation. They're not teaching salvation by rituals or, or observances or anything like that. Paul wouldn't put up with that if that was the problem. That's what the book of Galatians is all about. Because there people were saying, if you're not circumcised, you're not saved. If you're not this, you're not saved. If you're not doing that, you're not saved. It would, when salvation is, comes by grace through faith, right? Right? Thank you. In Galatians, where people were saying that salvation itself depended on works or ritual, especially circumcision, that was the big issue. That is a flat-out denial of justification by faith, and that kind of false doctrine is not to be accepted. In fact, listen to the first half of Galatians chapter 5, and, and you'll hear the difference in tone between that and, and Romans chapter 14. Here's Galatians 5. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. Now we're talking about circumcision for religious reasons, not medical reasons. Four. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. That's the key. They're seeking to be justified, made right with God, by law. You have fallen from grace, he said. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. Would that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. See, he's, he's a little upset about this. Because that's false doctrine. They were bringing in false doctrine. That's not what's going on in Romans 14. This is not heresy. We don't accept heretics. Heretics are gently rebuked, and if they maintain their error, they are shown the door. That's different. Because now we're talking about these grayer areas. The weak in faith, in Romans 14, do believe the correct gospel. But they can't quite give it full and free reign in their lives. They, they cling to forms and rules and rituals or signs that help give definition to their faith. The problem comes, the problem comes, when they think everyone should have the same rules and signs and respect the forms that they are using to help hold their faith. See, That's when it becomes a problem. Food was an example then and now. A Jew that came to Christ might well be expected to remain kosher in his eating habits. It just might be what he does, right? To him, it's a way to honor the Lord. It always has been for him. But he doesn't have to do that. Food restrictions, a food restriction is one of the many ways uh, of ritual purity that gave way when the real source of purity arrived. And who was that? Right, Jesus Christ, the Lord. In Him, by faith in Him, we are sanctified. He is our sanctification. So we can eat whatever we want. In Mark chapter 7, 
there's a whole discussion of uh, this. You can turn there if you want to. We'll come right back to Romans again. But Jesus is just blasting the Pharisees for ignoring key aspects of God's law while exalting their own human traditions. Rather than do God's will, they impose their own will on people by means of these little regulations. I'm going to pick it up at verse 14 of Mark chapter 7. It says, After he called the multitude to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. Verse 15, There is nothing outside the man which going into him can defile him. But the things which proceed out of the man are the things that defile the man. If any man has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 17, And when leaving the multitude, he entered the house, and his disciples questioned him about the parable. He said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Now notice verse 19 there. Thus he declared all foods clean. That is later confirmed in Acts chapter 10 when Peter, who is living a kosher life, has a vision commanding him to eat unclean animals from an Old Testament point of view. Unclean animals. Formally declared unclean. In fact, there's a command from God. He says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he has to say it to him like three times. If Peter was going to minister to Gentiles, as he was now called to do, he needed to be able to eat ham sandwiches. That's where, that's where it was. Because the Romans like ham sandwiches or whatever. Yeah. See, in the Old Testament, the concern was to protect the Israelites from becoming paganized. Here God plants this little people in the midst of these totally wicked, evil cultures and wants them to be faithful to him, cultures that worship multiple gods that were superstitious in the extreme that offered their own children as sacrifices and all these horrible, horrible things and they wanted them to be pure. So those rules in the Old Testament helped shield them. I mean, if we don't eat what you're eating, we can't fellowship. So it helped protect these Israelites until they were strong enough in worshiping one God faithfully. That was the purpose, to protect them. When Christ came... He makes us strong enough in himself. And the marching orders are totally different. It's not live in the land and cultivate faithfulness anymore. It's go into the world. Go into the world. Make disciples of all nations, teaching and baptizing. Different, different times. We're in a whole new phase in God's program. So the food thing is out. Crab meat's okay now. Now there are Christians that eat kosher. And that's the one that's weak in faith. Unless he's doing it for health reasons. There are some fringe denominations that tell everyone they should eat kosher or they're not spiritual. That is wrong. Verse 4 of Romans 14. Who are you to judge the servant of another? 
To his own master he stands or falls. And stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. See, you're just another servant of God, not God, right? You can't impose your ideas on other people. If you want to be kosher, fine! But don't give yourself points because you're not God. Don't put yourself in the master's place. That's what he's saying. Then in verse 5, he gives another example. Days. Days of the week. Observing religiously certain days. Maybe a Saturday Sabbath. Maybe a Jewish feast. Maybe a church festival. But he says in verse 5, one man regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind in his own mind. See, the weak says, this is a special day to honor God. The strong says, for whom Christ is his Sabbath rest. Every day is God's. The gospel is a gospel of liberty. Not liberty to sin, but liberty to glory in and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he is the reality that all of those rituals and practices pointed to. And once you have the reality, you don't need them anymore. Come on, how many of you, when you have, are using a map to get someplace, when you're there, you carry the map around and look at it all the time while you're there? You don't need it anymore because you're there. See? And all the Old Testament rituals that pointed to Christ are maps. They're signs pointing to him. And once we have the reality, all of that drops away. But some people can't quite let it all go yet. And they're the weak in faith. They believe in Jesus. They believe the right things about his salvation. But they're still holding on. That's well, okay. They can hold on for a while. Don't condemn them for that. But they can't impose their clinging on you. They can't do that. That's wrong. And it's wrong for you to look down on them. Appreciate where they are. Treasure where they are. Accept them. See? Martin Luther wrote a phenomenal tract setting apart the real gospel from the way it had been distorted throughout the Middle Ages. And he sent the tract to the Pope. I'm not sure if he read it. Because the church at that time was just locked in and bound by rituals and forms and observances of all kinds. And Luther, when he was a young monk, had gone to Rome from Germany himself and had seen just the incredible uh, decadence in the midst of just tons of ritual. And it was such a weird juxtaposition, the, the wealth and the sensuality, and at the same time, the constant uh, need to do ritual forms and all this stuff, and it really affected him. His book is called On Christian Liberty, or The Freedom of the Christian. And it explains, just like Paul does in Romans, why justification by faith alone, the gospel, makes a person a much more obedient Christian than... Church is manipulating through sacraments and rituals and threatenings. Why, well, it actually makes you stronger. It's one of the great works of theology. It really is. In fact, some of you read it. A number of years ago, we had a Bible study at my house on justification by faith, and we read that book together. And here's a glimpse of what he wrote. Just, I'm just going to quote a couple paragraphs from him. Luther says, Behold, from faith thus flow forth love and joy in the Lord. And from love, a joyful, willing, and free mind 
that serves one's neighbor willingly and takes no account of gratitude or ingratitude, of praise or blame, of gain or loss. For a man does not serve that he may put, put men under obligations. He does not distinguish between friends and enemies or anticipate their thankfulness or unthankfulness, but he most freely and most willingly spends himself and all that he has, whether he wastes all on the thankless or whether he gains a reward. As his father does, distributing all things to all men richly and freely, making his son rise on the evil and on the good, as it says in Matthew. So also the son does all things and suffers all things with that freely bestowing joy, which is his delight when through Christ he sees it in God, the dispenser of such great benefits. Therefore, we recognize the great and precious things which are given us, as Paul says, Romans 5.5, 5, our hearts will be filled with the Holy Spirit, with the love which makes us free, joyful, almighty workers and conquerors over all tribulations, servants of our neighbors, and yet lords of all. For those who do not recognize the gifts bestowed upon them through Christ, however, Christ has been born in vain. They go their way with their works and shall never come to taste or feel those things. Just as our neighbor is in need and lacks that in which we abound, so we were in need before God and lacked his mercy. Hence, as our Heavenly Father has in Christ freely come to our aid, we also ought freely to help our neighbor through our body and its works. And each one should become, as it were, a Christ to the other, that we may be Christ's to one another, and Christ may be the same in all, that is, that we may be truly Christians. Who then can comprehend the riches and the glory of the Christian life? It can do all things and has all things and lacks nothing. It is Lord over sin, death, and hell. And yet at the same time it serves, ministers to, and benefits all men. But alas, in our day this life is unknown throughout the world. It is neither preached about nor sought after. We are altogether ignorant of our own name and do not know why we are Christians or bear the name of Christians. Surely we are named after Christ, not because he is absent from us, but because he dwells in us. That is, because we believe in him and are Christ one to another and do to our neighbors as Christ does to us. But in our day, we are taught by the doctrine of men to seek nothing but merits, rewards, and the things that are ours. Of Christ we have made only a taskmaster far harsher than Moses. See, the glory of the Christian life is, is having Christ and living in Him. That's why faith alone makes us right with God. Faith apprehends and receives and trusts, leans on Christ. And Christ is everything. So when you have Him, you're not lacking in something. So you don't say, I have Christ, I'm going to hold on to this too. Or I have Christ, I'm going to hold on to that. You don't need to. Not if you really understand. There's nothing higher or more sufficient or more complete than he is. And in him we are free, not free to do evil, sin isn't freedom, but free to live as he would want us to. See? And as free Christians, as a free Christian, do you want to honor certain days? Do you want to do that? Then do it. If there are days that are special to you, brother, do it. Only don't criticize those who don't. Do you want to agree every day the same for Christ because he is the Lord of all? Do that. But don't look down on the guy that wants to celebrate certain days. Let him do it. Verse 5. Let each man be fully convinced 
in his own mind. Do what your conscience bids you to do. The weak brother can hurt his conscience, actually, by following the strong brother and not having the conviction himself, see? He needs to be respected in his conscience, not dragged into liberty without understanding it. So how do we live with others who love the Lord but do not see what we are doing as the ideal way of living out the Christian faith? We accept them and we respect where they are, period. Let's talk about a couple of modern examples. The, the most famous one probably over the last hundred years or so is the use of alcohol. Can a Christian have wine with his dinner? Some people say no. Some people say yes. Well, who's right? Does the Bible forbid it? No. So it's not a sin issue, is it? That's important to remember. If we're talking about a sin, sin needs to be rebuked. Drunkenness is a sin. You rebuke a drunkard. Drinking to excess. But is drinking at all a sin? No. If it is, Jesus was a sinner. Is it wrong for a person to refrain from alcohol altogether and be a teetotaler? No. In fact, the person who refrains can offer all kinds of reasons to abstain. Why put something in your life that's so easy to abuse? Good. That's a good point. Better safe than sorry. That's a good point. It's hard to get addicted if you never touch the stuff. That's a good point. What about my witness? What will others think? Reasonable, reasonable. So the abstainer's conscience informs him it is best to abstain. He should follow his conscience. My wife and I don't drink. Almost never. I mean, I think maybe twice in my life I've had just she has done to wine somewhere at some wedding or something. There's no alcohol in our house except for NyQuil. <clears throat> we, both, we both abstain, probably for different reasons. I've never had the slightest interest in alcohol, ever, even as a non-Christian, as a little pagan. I never, and this never interested me. I don't even get it. So it was never in our home when I was growing up, so it's like I don't understand the fascination. When it, when it gets close to my nose, it smells terrible, so I'm not, I'm not even interested. Laura was raised in a situation where alcohol was abused often, and she saw that. So she has a more visceral reaction against it, not wanting it even really around our home. Something that causes grief to her. So we don't drink. Other people in our church, in leadership, do drink carefully and with moderation. And that's fine. They have the liberty in Christ to do that. They know that there are other principles to consider as well, such as causing a brother to stumble. We'll talk about that next week in verse 13. So they are guarded about when and where they drink, respecting the conscience and perhaps the weakness of other people. That's appropriate. But what matters is not whether we abstain or not, as long as we don't sin, what matters is that we accept one another's conscience on this matter and the liberty to partake or not to partake. See? It's not a matter of sin. It's a matter of how we express our love for the Lord. One expresses the love for the Lord from abstaining. Another person expresses love for the Lord by gratefully enjoying what God has provided. See? The fruit of the grape. Look at verse 6. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. He who eats 
does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. You see, we're not talking about lax Christianity. These guys, neither one of them are indulging in sins of the flesh or wickedness. Both parties are partaking or abstaining for the Lord. See? You can say no for the Lord, and you can say yes for the Lord, as long as it is indeed for the Lord. Giving it up for Him, or partaking for Him with thanksgiving. Let's consider another example. Modesty. Now, modesty is not a gray principle. As a principle, it's a command. Uh, we're supposed to be modest, especially the ladies. That's what the Bible says. It's a biblical command to be modest. Every Christian woman should seek to have God's heart in this matter and ask herself, am I being modest? That's a, that's a totally fit and proper thing that we should encourage each other with. Her prayer should be, Lord, help me be wise in what I wear and glorify you with my wardrobe. That should be a godly woman's prayer. Now, what this means in life may differ from era to era, culture to culture, person to person, and that, that, that doesn't mean we throw out modesty because that's a biblical command. But it does mean we practice acceptance of those who sincerely differ in the details. If we went to Saudi Arabia and met with some Christians there, probably all of you ladies would be immodest, you see, in their culture. Because I can see necks and, and, uh, and, and some, some elbows. There's an elbow right there. Oh! And, you know, things like that. It's, it's shocking. You know, things do change from culture to culture. A Christian should certainly be modest by the standards of the culture that they live in, right? And hopefully we would be open to godly counsel on the issue. But that might, there might be, in other words, there might be variations in that. Some gray. But the principle is strong. No godly woman would ever want a, a man to have a problem, right? No godly woman would want that, to, to, to hurt his spiritual life through his eyes. So she's going to be careful. You know, some years ago, the, the ladies in the church put together the women's ministry ladies did a fashion show specifically to discuss these ideas about modesty. And they were very clever. In fact, they had me go around to the guys and interviewed a bunch of the guys and I asked them, what bothers you, you know, morally about the way women dress? And so, and they took those principles that they learned from there and did a fashion show, a, a not good and a good uh, visual, you know, expression of, of that with just the ladies there. To talk about it, it was a very fun and clever and non-condemning way to talk about a biblical issue. And actually apply it directly from life because this is what guys say bothers them, see? This is what causes them to stumble morally. And no godly woman would want to do that. So you correct your wardrobe, right? It was a great idea. No condemnation, no superior attitudes, just an honest appeal to holiness that maybe hadn't been fully considered. I think that's healthy. And I hope we are free enough to challenge each other to live better in some of these areas. Challenge each other in love to do that. I would like to know if I'm causing a problem to a brother or a sister in the Lord or to my own children because I'm doing something I shouldn't be doing. I would like to know that, wouldn't you? I've been lovingly challenged before and I appreciate it. As long as the one who wants me to think anew doesn't grow sullen and resentful if I respectfully disagree. That's, that's the thing. And sadly, that happens too sometimes. Let's take the most dangerous example of all. Words I say with fear even to bring up in church. 
Harry Potter. <laughs> I'm sorry. There are some things that should not be said in the Lord's house. Some people were a little shocked to learn that in my house, we like Harry Potter. <laughs> my kids read Harry Potter books and we like the movie. We enjoyed it immensely. And I was, I was opposed to it until I saw it because of what I had heard. But I found it to be a delightful fantasy. And I emphasize the word fantasy. <laughs> and here's where verse 6 comes in. For the Lord. Now, I want you to try to understand the principle here. If I casually without thinking, threw Harry Potter at my kids and said, hey, everybody's reading this book, here, read this. And now it's a really popular movie, let's just go see it. That would be foolish on my part. If I did it without thought or serious consideration, I would be very unwise. You, if you know me, you know I take entertainment very seriously. That's why I wrote the book on it. It's right out there on the <laughs> I have to, as a pastor, pick up the pieces of Hollywood's influence all the time. So I'm not a big fan of uh, what goes on in the entertainment world. And I'm not enamored by big box office. And I'm not impressed with special effects, particularly, or anything like that. Or popularity. None of that means anything to me. I don't care who the actors are or anything. I don't care. That doesn't, nothing, none of that draws me. I read the criticisms of Harry Potter. I, I did that. I read them. I checked it out for myself. And I found the criticisms for myself and my family to be largely without merit. Because I understand the genre, which is fantasy. Okay, Fantasy is a way to teach morality in an unusual setting to bring it out. Same thing with science fiction. You take a weird situation and you teach ethics through that unusual situation. That's really what Harry Potter does in a secular way. The morals in Harry Potter, at least so far, that I can see, are not explicitly Christian, but they are also consistent with Christianity. They are consistent with Christianity, as I can see it, what they're trying to teach through it. Some Christians don't believe in fantasy as a genre. It isn't real, so it isn't good. Fa um, magical people, that's sort of like, you know, magic. And witchcraft, the actual practice of real witchcraft is a sin. What they do in Harry Potter isn't real witchcraft. It's totally a fantasy. They have unicorns running around, you know, things like that. But you know what? People that reject fantasy as a genre and say that anything like that that's fanciful has fairies in it or anything like that, that's wrong. I respect that. I respect that point of view. That makes sense to me. I can understand it. I can understand saying, you know, even though it's not real, it does have a cultic quality. They use the word witchcraft in it and these people are magical and all that stuff. So I can understand that point. So, and we're not going to be promoting Harry. We're not going to show Harry at youth group meetings. We're not going to use him for Bible study. Somebody, in fact, in the church shared with me that they had a background in the occult. And they don't want to be anywhere near it. Which is just like my wife's reaction to alcohol. I totally understand that. I respect that. That's, in fact, I think that's wise. That's their conscience. I'm not going to violate their conscience. And they shouldn't violate mine. I honestly believe it's something that, having reflected carefully on it, is something we can enjoy with Thanksgiving. But other people, maybe they can't. And that's okay. Let's use Mr. Potter as a demonstration of how this should actually work out. Let's say you heard all these horrible things about Harry. I'm just wild about Harry. No, I'm just... <laughs> that's a song. <laughs> Let's say you heard all these horrible things, and there were actually a lot of misinformation things about Harry Potter going out over the internet, uh, which is another story. But 
let's say after hearing all those horrible things, you overheard me or one of my children or somebody else in the church say something like, Pastor Wayne let his kids read the Harry Potter books. And so you're confused by that. And you're hurt by that. How could he? How could that paragon of virtue... Whatever. <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> Edit that laugh from the tape, please. <laughs> How could that paragon... Of, okay, forget that. How could pastor... <laughs> Do that! What do you do in a situation like that? What should you do? Be bitter about me? Think bad about me? Talk to other people about me? Slam me down? Or should you come to me? The best thing in the world for you to do is come to me in love and say, I heard that you like Harry Potter and I understand that it promotes the occult and it just hurt me to hear you that you liked it or you let your kids read it and it bothers me that you might be compromising in some way, Pastor and could you share with me your reasoning on this matter? That's the right thing to do! And then when I tell you, you know what, I've carefully considered it, I looked at it really carefully and I, I, I don't see the problem and I think this is okay and I hope you can respect that and then we're okay, right? See? And even if you disagree, that's fine. That's fine. That's an excellent way to approach someone. It doesn't accuse me or anybody else. It expresses a real concern. Now I have to think about it because you came to me. What if I hadn't thought about it? What if they were reading it and I just thought, oh, it's just a book for kids. And I hadn't thought about it and then you got me interested and now I'm going to check it out more. That's a good thing. So thank you for bringing it up. It doesn't accuse me. It helps me. I might need to rethink my Potter position. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong about it. Maybe I haven't thought of something you've thought of about it. See? That's good. We should be. We need to be open to loving, concerned correction. And I would truly welcome such gentle confrontation. Wouldn't you? But once I've made my explanation and given my reasons and declared that I have really thought it through, then accept me as a sincere brother gratefully receiving something from the Lord even though we may differ can we all do that that's the way a church stays really healthy it really is I think that's what Paul would want to see happen here we help each other we stimulate each other to love and good works as the Bible says we should do we even challenge each other in love but we accept one another at the end of the day in love so as brothers and sisters challenging one another, have you thought that through? Is that the best? Is it wise? Good question. And when we're done, as long as it isn't sin, we maintain our fellowship and our love for one another. Well, I didn't get as far as I wanted to today. We'll, we'll pick it up here next week and uh, continue on. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of Scripture that brings us together and holds us together that in Christ as we see his love and acceptance that we love and accept one another we thank you for the truth of scripture because it does meet every real need of our lives and this one is a big one Lord it's a, it's a thing that's destroyed churches time and time again broken relationships hurt friends, friendships put families at enmity against one another and we pray for the grace and the wisdom to accept one another in these difficult areas and controversial areas and gray areas by your grace and, and wisdom. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.